Abibi Fahodie, this is the African Liberation Media. I am Brother Mark Haru. Here tonight with African Liberation Media contributor Tahira. And we are missing our brothers who are still, uh, Brother Amos is still out doing some field studies. And Gullah Jack is also doing some community work. Those brothers will hopefully be back in the studio next Friday for our the taping of the podcast, African Liberation Media podcast. It is another blessed day, another day to have an opportunity to discuss some issues that we think are relevant to the conditions and the situations faced by the global African community. And I want to start with a very very positive event that took place here in Charlotte, North Carolina last Saturday. We celebrated the Males Place Blessing of the Garden. And even though I was there in the beginning and it wasn't that long ago, I can't remember if this is the ninth year or the tenth year. I'll have to ask Brother Reggie Singleton. Since we started uh, this garden, this community garden, as a way of expanding the scope of the young men in the male's place manhood uh, training program. For those who don't know, and I know many of our listeners do, uh, the male's place was started in 1993. Its original mission was pregnancy prevention. And in 1995, uh, Brother Singleton, along with a lot of, lot of us, attended the Million Man March. And based on inspirations that he received at the Million Man March, he decided to refocus the Males Place program uh, to, uh, to have a broader scope and to address one of the problems that was emerging in the African-American community at that time, which was the disintegration of the black family, particularly Many, many, many black families, uh, black children were being raised without fathers in the home, and someone needed to uh, stand in the gap to fill that void. So in the context of Franz Fanon, who said, each generation must, out of relative obscurity, discover its mission and fulfill it or betray it, Brother Reggie Singleton discovered a mission that needed to be fulfilled, and that mission was to engage in the process of manhood training for our young males, who were, many of whom were growing up without their fathers. This is a critical issue for several reasons. The most important reason is that the family is the fundamental power unit in any community. Without strong black families, there would have been no civil rights movement. We know about people like Martin Luther and Coretta Scott King, Fannie Lou and Pap Hamer, Malcolm and Betty Shabazz, Ralph and Juanita Abernathy. We know, we know about them. We know about the families that produced the young people who were born in the 1940s. We're talking about people like Adolphus and May Mabel Charles Carmichael, who produced uh, one of my heroes, Stokely Carmichael, who became Kwame Ture, uh, 
strong black families produced the young people of the 19, who rose up in the 1960s, who had been born in the 1940s, rose up to challenge American apartheid. We're talking about people like Diane Nash, John Lewis, Cleveland Sellers, Willie Ricks, Ruby Doris Robinson, Faye Bellamy, Cortland Cox, Dory Ladner, and so many others. Charles Jones from right here in Charlotte. All of these people became members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was the, the youth wing of the uh, civil rights movement. Courageous, courageous young people who went onto the battlefields of Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia and Louisiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, and contributed to the success. But all of these people were products of strong black families. So what the male's, the male's place, which uh, takes uh, its name as a guided journey to manhood, seeks to produce strong black males who will co-partner with strong black females and produce strong black families. So last week we had uh, a celebration of the garden, the Males Place Community Garden, uh, a celebration of the harvest, uh, the beautiful uh, fall fruits, uh, the fall vegetables, all of the, all of the greens, various types of greens, your, your kale, your, your collops, your turnips, Romaine lettuce, broccoli, all of those th all those things, and the move the move towards agriculture became the third pillar of the mass of the male's place. The first pillar is what I would call uh, the guided journey, and that is performed by the the elders or or the older guys, some of whom are not that very old. A lot of them in their twenties. We gave them the uh, Kiswahili. We took a name from Kiswahili, Mashari, which means advisors or counselors. So they are the guides in, in, in terms of the guided journey. And then there is the agricultural piece, which is critical to any, any community's independence, being able to feed yourself. We remember the African revolutionary Thomas Sankara, who was the president of Burkina Faso before he was assassinated by our enemies, some of whom were in blackface, said, if you want to see imperialism, look at your plates. In other words, if you want to see domination, if you want to see control, just look at your plates and look at where the, where the food comes from. And this is, this is an ongoing issue throughout the global African community. So, the male's place seeks to teach young men how to become conscious farmers, conscious producers of vegetables so that they can help feed their families. And then the third, the third part of the male's place program is called social justice. Dr. Martin Luther King said that true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. No community can experience peace or justice without power. 
So you can see how these three uh, concepts, these three uh, pillars of the program are connected. The guided journey, the, the agriculture, and the social justice, they're all inextricably linked as we attempt to empower and, and liberate our community. Back in, I want to think it may, it may have been 2010, Brother Singleton asked me to compose a mantra, something that the young men uh, would say that, that would instill a sense of uh, identity, purpose, and direction for the young men who are in the program. The, pro, the, the young men in the program are between 12 and 18. Sometimes they will take in guys that are, that are a bit younger. They've served over 3,000 black males in this community since, uh, since the inception of the program. So it's, it's really one of the most outstanding programs we have certainly in this city, in the state, and I think in the country. But Brother Singleton asked me to compose this mantra, which is repeated before the start of every, every program. And I took a poem that my daughter had learned when she was attending Brisbane Academy. To my knowledge, no one has ever been able to determine who the author of the poem is, and I combine, I combine that with Dr. Marlana Karinga's definition of values. So this, this, this uh, mantra explains really what the male's place is all about. The mantra says this, I watch my thoughts, they become my words. I watch my words, they become my actions. I watch my actions, they become my character. I watch my character, it determines my destiny. Values are categories of commitment and priorities which enhance or diminish human possibilities. As a result of the manhood training I'm receiving at the male's place, I have a positive focus on my thoughts, words, actions, character, and destiny, which will enhance my possibilities, thus benefiting myself, my family, my community, and my people. So that's really what it's all about, the the, the, the inextricable linkage between thoughts, words, actions, character, and destiny, and then the, the combination that, that, that Marcus Garvey says should be our priorities, and that is you know, our, our, ourselves, our families, our community, and our people. So this was, this, we had a great program, a, a number of, of outstanding uh, young speakers uh, and drumming, the senior drummers here in Charlotte performed. Uh, Minister Lee Muhammad, who is an agriculturalist, spoke. Um, several other speakers uh, spoke, along with Brother Singleton and, of course, the young men for the program. So it was a great day and just a, just a truly positive event. And we look forward to continuing uh, to support this program, um, they they have just uh, returned this summer from a trip to Cuba. Um, in 2018, they went to Ghana, and that was their second trip to Ghana. They also went in 2010. So this is a way of exposing our young people, broadening their horizons, broadening their scope, giving them a greater understanding of how the world operates, seeing things in other parts of the world. These, the, the things that these young men get a chance to experience are just phenomenal. So 
If you're in the Charlotte community and you have a young male between 12 and 18, if there are any uh, spots available, you may want to contact Brother Reggie Singleton. You can look on, uh, just uh, do a search on The Male's Place, and you can find it. So just wanted to highlight that because that was a, that was a magnificent event I had the opportunity to, to participate. I always help them with the garden every year. Uh, planting the vegetables, we plant uh, summer crops and fall crops. And the good thing about planting your own vegetables is that you know what you put in the ground, therefore you know what comes out. You know that you know you're not dealing with a whole lot of chemicals and herbicides and GMO seeds and all these kinds of things. I mean, you know, sometimes people complain because. Uh, if you don't have enough ladybugs, for example, some, you know, insects might bite a few holes in the leaves and people will say, man, look, there, there, there's a hole in that leaf. Well, look, if a bug doesn't want it, then you shouldn't want it. So that's one that's one that's one way to look at it. Of course, I mean, there are there are healthy ways to um, to protect your plants also. But you know what went in the ground, you know what comes out. And so the, the garden is doing beautiful, and actually um, many of these crops will still be harvested in, ju- in January and February. I have actually gotten, gotten collard greens out of that garden that, that we planted in September and February, still uh, producing collards, particularly after they get some of that North Carolina frost on it. Okay, moving, moving right along. A couple other things that happened that uh, we wanted to talk about. One of them was the, the, the Emmett Till historical marker, which is along the Tallahatchie River in, uh, in Mississippi. It's, it's at the spot where young Till's body was, was pulled, supposedly pulled out of the water August 28th, uh, 1955, he was 14 years old, and um, some conscious people in the community thought that, uh, that that history shouldn't be lost. So they so they went about organizing and getting a historical marker. And I think the first one that was put in place maybe in 2008. Some white supremacists promptly dug the marker up and threw it in the water. The second, they they put a second marker down. It was shot full of, it was riddled with bullets. Bullet holes all through the marker. And the same thing happened to the third one. And what this reminds us of is that our enemies not only kill us physically, they want to kill any memory of us which just shows the depths of, of their depravity and their barbarism. The fact that, uh, you know, you've already lynched this young man, Roy Bryant, J.W. Big Milam, who actually went on to become a sheriff in a neighboring county in, in Mississippi. Mm. I guess that was his reward. Wow. I remember uh, I was reading this story, and Kwame Ture, was walking down a, 
the street with Fannie Lou Hamer. This may have been in Greenwood, Mississippi. And he said he looked at Miss Hamer and, and a look of horror came over her face. This was in 1964. And he looked at her and he, he knows how strong Mrs. Hamer was, one of the strongest black women that's ever walked the planet. And he said, he said, what's the matter? And she said, there's Big Malum. The killer of Emmett Till was riding down the street as Kwame Ture and Fannie Lou Hamer were walking by and I believe it was in Greenwood. But uh, we, they, 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 they murdered this young man. They were, of course, not convicted. An all-white jury didn't convict him. The, uh, the wife of Roy Bryant, Carolyn Bryant, eventually admitted that she lied, that Emmett Till said absolutely nothing to her. She told a lie that he had whistled with her or said something, some smart remark or something. And that's what uh, that's why he was he was killed. He was lynched, you know, by these two white supremacists. So they physically killed him and now they just they want to destroy the memory. So what so what is taking place now is that the fourth marker has been has been placed at the site. It's a 500 pound marker and it had to be uh, encased in bulletproof glass. So we, we'll see. I, I'm sure the white supremacists are going to go out and try once again to uh, to attack that. But you know that's just that's just what we're dealing with. And the th and, and the thing the thing that I was that that it made me think about was some other other people who have been you know victims of lynchings, and and one of them. Uh, one of the most uh, just absolutely, I, I, I don't know the words to describe this particular lynching. It was actually a series of lynchings in 1918, but the one we talk about most often is, um, is Mary Turner. And um, there, there is a, there's a historical marker in Valdosta, Georgia, to, uh, to mark the the, to recognize the lynching or remember the lynching of, of Mary Turner, her husband, and several other people. And it's been shot up several times, full of bullets. And it's just just amazing. But for people who don't know, uh, who don't know who Mary, Mary Turner is, uh, she was lynched in 1918. She was 33 years old. She was eight months pregnant at the time. Her husband had been killed in the limping rampage on May 19, 1918. She publicly objected to her husband's murder. She also had the audacity to threaten to swear out warrants for those responsible. The local newspaper said that those were very unwise remarks. And it in... Uh, sent the, uh, the, the white supremacists into a, a frenzy because this black woman was threatening to uh, take some legal action against the people who had killed her mother, I mean, her, her, her husband. So once these threats started, Mary Turner fled for her life only to be caught and taken to the place called Folsom's Bridge on the Brooks and Lowndes County uh, border. 
To punish her at Folsom Bridge, the mob tied Mary Turner by her ankles and hung her upside down from a tree. They poured gasoline on her clothes and burned her clothes off. One member of the mob then cut her stomach open and her unborn child dropped to the ground where it was reportedly stomped on and crushed by a member of the mob. Her body was then riddled with bullets. Later that night, she and her baby were buried 10 feet away from where they were murdered. And the, uh, they had a makeshift grave that was marked with a, a whiskey bottle with a cigar stuck in it. So, um, this, this, this mentality, this mentality runs through the veins of this country. And at, there are times when it bubbles, it explodes like, 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 a, like a sore that just, just explodes. And there are times when, you know, it's not as, as violent or virulent. And, you know, I think we're in one of those times when, when it's, it, once again, this, this cancer is exploding, this sore is exploding. Um. But let me just say this. Uh, three days after the murder of Mary Turner and her baby, three more bodies were found in the area. And Sidney Johnson was killed in a shootout with the police. Now, this is a guy I think they, they accused of, of killing a white man that set all, these, all this uh, mess off, you know, this, this, uh, bob, this barbarism. Once killed, the crowd of more than 700 people gathered. His genitals were, were cut off and thrown into the street. A rope was then tied to his neck and his body was drugged for nearly 20 miles to Campground Church. That, that seems to be an appropriate place where these white supremacists would take somebody to a church in Morvin, Georgia, 16 miles away. There, what remained of his body was burned. During and shortly after this chain of events, it was reported that more than 500 black people fled Lowndes and Brooks counties in fear for their lives, which you can't, you can't, you can't blame people. But the point, the point here is that, is that they physically kill us and then they want to absolutely destroy our memory, which says that they actually want just to commit genocide against us. Now, obviously, this, this is not all people of European descent. We're talking about the, the white supremacy dynamic. The, the social forces, the political forces of white supremacy, which maintain the balance of power in this country, from Washington to Trump. So let me uh, stop this, break up this monologue a little bit, uh, to hear if you had something that uh, that had come up just to, to get us a, uh, on a different <laughs> different train of thought here, we we're just going for just for a few minutes here tonight, just to just to keep the program running while our brothers are out doing some work. Um. Yes. So uh, you know, I'm I'm big on social media, and um, I, I love my reality TV shows. And I haven't, I wasn't able to catch up on the last few episodes, but um, on Basketball Wives, uh, their star, Evelyn Lozada, and um, uh, 
a newbie. Her name is O.G. Chin. It looks like Chin Chai Jinju. I don't know her. It's C-H-I-J-I-N-D-U. But anyway, she's Nigerian. I think she might be um, might be American-born, um, but parents are definitely um, from Nigeria. And Evelyn Lozada is Puerto Rican. I don't know what what transpired, but I do know from what's being reported on social media, apparently uh, these two have been going at it, and uh, and I don't know if Evelyn actually said the N word or or not, but OG. Uh, accused Evelyn of trying to act black and said that, uh, you know, she shouldn't have been saying the N-word. And then, so that came out, and 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 then uh, rapper Fat Joe, who I believe is also Puerto Rican, said that, you know, um, all Latinos or Afro-Latinos are, are black. Now, for me personally, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted in this because I say, for my definition, my personal definition, it doesn't mean anything to anybody of black, may be a little different. Um, I think of, I've always thought of black people as, um, you know, us in America who who don't, you know, we know we're from the continent of Africa, but we can't tell you specifically, you know, what what country on uh the west coast, you know, that that we're we're from. We can't identify like I, I, for it, for instance, I wouldn't call President Obama black because he um, you know, he his mother is white, you know, and he was raised by white, you know, grandparents, but more so than that, his father is African and he can he can tell you exactly you know, he has a place to call home when he goes to Africa. He has a grandmother there and cousins. And we don't have that type of direct, you know, connection to Africa. So my question to you, for, so for my definition of black is, you know, our ancestors were, were uh, forced here. You know, we know we're from Africa. We don't know exactly where. Um, but we've been here in America. Um, and we're just black because we don't, you know, we could say we're African, but, you know, African... Africa is is a big continent, you know. So my question to you is, um, and in this situation, with that definition, the definition that I have, I wouldn't necessarily consider either of the two, OG or Evelyn, as, as black. You know, OG, if she's from Nigeria, when and her ancestors, I guess, could be, um, well, I think she's from, um, yeah, she's from Nigeria. I don't know if she was born in America or not. But anyway, I think that... Uh, I don't know. My question to you is in in response to what um, Fat Joe said about um, our Latinos or Afro Latinos. I forget exactly what he said. What What is your take on them being considered black, or you know, you know, what is your take on them being considered black? Well. You say they are from Puerto Rico? Yeah, I think both of Ev- Evelyn was born in the United States. Mm-hmm. I think she was born in New York. Um, but her parents are both Puerto Rican, and she has family 
uh, I know she had a granddad because they had an episode where she went to go visit her, some relatives. I know she has a granddad in, in I think, Puerto Rico. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. But she's, 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 uh, she's fair-skinned like, um, like, uh, Alex Rodriguez? Yeah, A-Rod. Okay. Well, Puerto Rico was the one of the last countries in the Western Hemisphere to outlaw chattel slavery. They outlawed slavery in, in 1873. The United States, of course, was 1865, and two countries after that were Cuba, 1886, and Brazil, 18, 1888. Uh, Puerto Rico was a Spanish colony, one of the uh, one of the islands that was was conquered by the Spaniards that came in the wake of uh, the disaster of 1492. So the original population of the island would have been indigenous people, uh, perhaps uh, Tiano people. Uh, I doubt Arawaks, but maybe, possibly. They were, of course, wiped out, genocide. It's doubtful. There are very few, if any, pure stock of the uh, indigenous people of of that island left. Enslaved, uh, you know, Africans were forcibly migrated to the island to 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 work the uh, plantations owned by the Spaniards, various types of plantations on the island. So the island the island has a combination of of Spanish people and African people, and many of them have have intermarried. And I don't know enough about Puerto Rico to know if they have serious uh, color complex issues like uh, like they have on some of the other islands, particularly the Dominican Republic, which Sammy Sosa may be the worst. Yeah, yeah, the human nightmare. <laughs> um, so I don't know what I don't know the you know. If these people were standing in front of me right now, these people that you mentioned, if they were standing in front of me right now, I, I wouldn't know them. I, wouldn't, I don't have any idea who they are. I, I've heard the names, but if they were right in front of me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know who they are. Um, so without knowing, number one, you know, is their ancestor, do they have any African ancestry? I mean, to me, that... That determines one thing, at least in terms of, you know, in terms of identity. Uh, the other thing is is in terms of of history and and culture. I mean, what type of what type of history, uh, you know, do do, uh, do they have in in, in terms of uh, in terms of their ancestors? Were, were, were their ancestors uh, Spanish colonizers? If the ancestors were Spanish colonizers, then no, they can't be considered to be part of of the African uh, community or the black community. Uh, you know, unless they are a revolutionary like 
Fidel Castro, and you know, Fidel said Fidel's uh, father was a, was a, was a Spaniard. Was came, came there as a, as a result of the Spanish colonization of Cuba. But his 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 orientation was he said the blood of African of Africa flows freely in our veins. That was one of my favorite quotes by uh, Dr. Fidel Castro Ruz. Uh, but even though technically for him that 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 wasn't that wasn't true in terms of actual ancestry, but that was his orientation or his mentality. But he never stood up and said he was an African. So I don't know I, I, if if your ancestors are Spaniards, I don't know how you could claim to be Afro-Latina. Now, if if there's if there's some uh, intermixture and whatnot, then it, it then to me it depends on on what your history and culture is in terms of what what do you identify with? Do you do you identify with the history of African people in this hemisphere? Which of course, you know, begins with chattel slavery uh, for most of us. Now we know that there were some Africans, uh, Ivan Van Sertima and many others have determined that there were obviously Africans here, not only before Columbus, but actually before the common era. There were Africans, uh, you know, in this in this hemisphere, uh, on uh, various uh, various places, you know, in in South America, Central America, and North America. But I'm not talking. I'm not not talking about those Africans who were obviously conquered when the when the Europeans came. I'm talking about those of us who are here as a result of the world's largest forced migration. Do these people identify with that history, that history of coming coming from chattel slavery, have, having to, having to deal with the the barbarism and the daily terror of, of chattel slavery, uh, the you know the all of the the murder, the dehumanization, the the, the rape of our foremothers. Uh, you know, which is, you know, produce obviously people with, with less melanin like myself. Uh, so that that to me, that's that that's that's what determines it, because, you know, my experience is the African experience or the black experience in the United States. So that I don't know. I don't know what the experience is and I don't know. I don't know what they what they identify with in term in terms of culture. I mean, a lot of people are trying to be everything to everybody, and you know that just that just doesn't fly because I I don't know I don't know where you will be when when the word is given that you know we have to you know escalate this struggle for the liberation and empowerment of African people. Do they identify with the African continent? I mean. You know, we can uh, see to me identifying identifying with these countries that that were created as a result of the of the Berlin Conference is 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 a false sense of identity, in my opinion. Identifying with Nigeria, in my opinion, or Ghana, or or Cote d'Ivoire, or wherever. 
is a false sense of identity because those are those are not original African formations. Now there were Africans who lived in those areas who were parts of various ethnic groups like the Yoruba, the Hausa, the Igbo, the Fulani. And you know, we do have the we do have the capability of of de- of determining the ethnic group. Determining the country to me I'm like I'm like uh, Professor Emma DeBrary. These countries, in my opinion, are fictitious states because they are they were created by Europeans at the Berlin Conference. I mean, when if you look if you look if you look at a map of pre-colonial Africa, you you can't find Nigeria. Now you you can find ancient Ghana. But that it doesn't have the same location as as present Ghana, modern day Ghana. Liberia, we know, was created as a result of you know the, by the American Colonization Society. Sierra Leone was created by the British. So, it, to me, it's a false it's a false sense of identity. I think we need to identify as African people first. And then, and and then, you know that should be the basis for our for our unification. So both both of these entertainers, uh, first of all, if the if the if the one entertainer was using the N word, I don't care if she's Puerto Rican or if she's a, a boar from South Africa, she has no reason she she she's wrong for 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 doing that. If she's using the thinking well. You know, it's okay. I'm using it because all these, all of these uh, rappers use it in their music, and that's how a lot of black people address one another that way. Uh, you know, that's uh, you know, that's something that we shouldn't accept under any condition. So, I don't know if I answered your question directly or or not, but you know, that's that's the way I look at it. Okay, I'll I'll accept that. Um, then the next thing is, what's your uh, what's your take on? Um, so we had a cupcake, uh, Camille McKinney in in Alabama, and then we had uh, Nevaeh Adams in in South Carolina. And I know that the podcast and and the movement is you know African Liberation Media, and the middle word is is uh, liberation. So you you uh, you get stuck in this place where you're fighting two battles. You know you're fighting one battle against white supremacy and oppression, and and all of that evil, and you have another battle that you're stuck fighting within your own community um, where where nobody is safe. Um, our elders are not safe. Our our children are not safe. Our our young. Uh, adults are not safe. Nobody, nobody is safe, and so we're catching it from both sides. And you know, how do you liberate yourself when you're fighting? You know, how do you fight two battles? Uh, how, how is there no group of people in the community that is that is safe? Like I said, not the elders, not the infants. Um, it's just a, a total. You know, it's a. Uh, this is you know. 
we say Black Lives Matter, matter and you know, and move the movement itself aside, you know, um, and the people that are you know over that organization aside. But but we say that, um, and and it's like it, in our community, it just it, it sometimes it feels like it, it doesn't because you know how do you kill a three or a five or a six year old, you know? And allegedly, they're they're black people that are responsible for this. Um, you know, how do you how do you fight both of these battles, and, and how do we get to to true liberation um, with with this type of thing going on? <laughs> yeah, it is it is a challenge, and it's and, it, and it's one that that we could we could not have imagined at. At the height of the Black Liberation Movement, which I would say was in the early early 1970s, those of us who were part of that couldn't could not imagine that we would be dealing with the level of self destruction that 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 we are seeing in our community today, but. Dr. Amos Wilson, the foremost scholar on this subject, the author of Black on Black Violence, the Psychodynamics of Black Self-Annihilation in Service of White Domination, explains, you know, how all of how actually black on black violence and white on black violence are simply opposite sides of the same coin. And the coin, if we if we would describe the coin, it would it it would be the coin of powerlessness. We don't have the power to determine our own destiny. We don't have the power to determine the consciousness of our people, the way our people think, the way our people behave. You know, this is what the Mills Place program is trying to change in, in, in the group of people that they can reach. And so I'm familiar, I was, I was familiar with the story of the young lady of the uh, three-year-old, was the three-year-old that was, was it South Carolina? Mm-hmm. Nevaeh. Nevaeh. Uh, there was a Negro that was dating her mother. He killed the mother and for whatever reason killed the three-year-old child and threw her in a, in a, a dumpster. And by, and by the time he admitted this, the dumpster had been emptied into the landfill. Mm. And I think they found the body in the landfill. Now, I, I'll be honest with you. When I, you know, when I was growing up during the era of American apartheid, there were certain crimes when they were committed. Like if you heard something like a serial killer or a serial rapist, the old folks in the community would say, well, we, we know white people did that, <laughs> you know. You know, because black people don't don't do those kinds of things. And for a culture, for a culture, traditional African culture is a child-centric culture. It's part of our spirituality. And the and the and the child-centeredness starts when our mothers are carrying the babies in the womb. 
the mother, the baby that's in the womb is already considered to be part of our community. And so children are, are precious. And this is, this is the history of African people prior to coming under particularly the domination of, of Europeans. There was obviously that Arab domination of part of the, of, of the continent occurred before in North Africa, but the European domination, they actually came in and dominated the Arabs also, and they took over the whole continent. And, of course, chattel slavery, which began with Africans being transported to Europe in 1441 and continued until it was outlawed in Brazil in 1888. Professor Chinuezu calls this the black chattelization race war. That's really what it was. People should stop using the term transatlantic slave trade. It was a war. It was a war. War has all kinds of devastating impacts. But what has happened to us is that for the past 500 plus years, we have been disempowered. Prior to the coming of the Europeans in most of West Africa, we walked as free, proud, productive, and prosperous people. Prior to the coming of the Europeans, free, proud, productive, prosperous, and powerful people. Okay? And by power, I mean, unfortunately, all Africans were, had not organized themselves into these large nation states like ancient Ghana, Mali, and Songhai. But even in the, the various little kingdoms, people were able to determine their own destiny prior to the coming of the European. Now, obviously, we know some of our people collaborated with the Europeans. These were race traitors. But we have been disempowered over the past 500 plus years by barbaric and sophisticated systems of white supremacy. And one of, one of the results of being disempowered is what Dr. Amos Wilson calls the psychodynamics of black self-annihilation. These are, these are things that enter into our, into our psyche and enter into our culture that young children get exposed to. Our children are exposed to this at a, at, a, at a very early age, this sense of self-hatred, this, this sense of self-abnegation, the, uh, the sense that, that, uh, that, that, that we can't accomplish anything, that we've never done anything, that, 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 we ha that we have no history, no achievements. And so, so this produces a, a, a certain attitude. Tupac Shakur coined the, the, the term thug life. And, and when you spell it out, T-H-U-G-L-I-F-E, what it means is the hate you give little infants. And he then uses the F word, everybody. So a, lo a, 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 lot of, a lot of people are growing up in dysfunctional homes, Surrounded by a, a, just nothing but negative things. These are the psychodynamics of black self-annihilation. These, these things, they, they enter into our psyche as youth, and then they explode when, you know, we, 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 when we become older. I mean, it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a, a germ that's been planted that, that, that lies dormant for 
several years. And then all of a sudden, when people get a little older, then all of those things that have been internalized, they explode. And so to to think about to think about how there 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 was a couple in was it Birmingham? Where, where was the Alabama? Birmingham. Yeah, the couple they arrested a black male and a black female in in Birmingham. Uh, they seized the black male's phone and they found child pornography on it. That's got you got that you got to be a, mm-hmm. a sick person to be to have that kind of mentality. But it shows you how how all of the negative influences of this society are impacting us. You know, I call America, you know, a base of the path society, you know, and at the base of the path are the uh, sexual organs. And, and according to Dr. Richard King, they generate a certain mentality, you know, jealousy, envy, in, indiscriminate lust, insatiable quest, uh, insatiable quest for, uh, for power and, and domination and, and uh, materialism, hedonism, all, all, all kinds of uh, perverted activities, you know, pedophilia, pederasty, all of these types of things. And so we, we, have, we have internalized a lot of these negative characteristics to the extent that we are actually killing our own children. Mm. And the 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 only the, the only way that i think we will we'll recover for this is we have to have a movement where where we are once again empowered to walk the earth as free proud productive prosperous and powerful people we have to totally rid ourselves of the negative impacts of white supremacy which initially degraded us and, and instilled in us this sense of self-hatred, this sense, sense of, um, of disconnectedness and, and Eurocentric thought that says, you know, the world revolves around Europeans because they have all this power. You know, they have Wall Street. You know, they have uh, Lords of London. They have nuclear weapons. <laughs> you know, they have... so. The world revolves around them because of the power that they have, but that power is built on their capacity to dominate other people because, quite frankly, without Africa, Europe would be the world's largest ghetto. So with, without, without being once becoming empowered, without a complete rupture from the, the negative aspects of European culture, you know, that, have, that has taught us to hate ourselves and to engage in all these negative activities, you know, risk, uh, disproportionate risk-taking. A lot of young men don't, don't, they don't value life because they don't value their own lives. They don't think they have anything to live for, so they, they die in a heartbeat, and they take a life in a heartbeat. So it is, it, it, it is a difficult task, and you're right because what it says is that, that you have to fight a war on two fronts. You have to fight a war on two fronts, and but that is two fronts. But there's one solution, and the solution is power. That is the capacity to determine your own destiny. To uh, to be able to positively impact the spiritual, the psychological, and the material conditions 
of the masses of our people so that, 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 that we are doing things that will enhance our possibilities as opposed to diminishing our possibilities. So, um, yeah, I, I understand. It, it, it's very depressing, quite frankly, when you read about a drive-by, children, children playing in the park, some children at a party, some fool rides by, some people get in an argument over a basketball game and start shooting. And a stray bullet strikes a child in the head. I mean, it's just, uh, it, it, it's, it's a level of insanity. But at the same time, it's a tyranny. You know, Frederick Douglass said that the limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. And, and, and what it requires, what, what, these double, what this double tyranny requires is a mass-based struggle that actually it see, exceeds the level of involvement and activity that we saw during the, during the civil rights era. It's got it's to be larger. It's got it's to have more people involved in it. And we can do this. Just like Rosa Parks got tired. Rosa Parks got tired. Her, her endurance of white supremacist tyranny ran out on December 1st, 1955. So when, you know, when our endurance of the tyranny expires, and there are some signs that it's beginning to expire, when it expires, then we'll engage in the, the type of positive action that, uh, that, that, that changes this. But it, 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 it is a difficult task, very difficult. I just don't think we had the, the level of ignorance that, that uh, we had when, when Rosa Parks got tired. I think now we have a level of ignorance that is that's off the chart. I, I don't think y'all had the, that level of ignorance back then. Well, um, you, you you're correct because because what has what has happened. I mean, was there even a thing called black on black violence when? Rosa well, there, there was, but there was, but I mean it. But it, was it a thing? It, well, no, we didn't call it that. I mean, but but I mean, there was there was there was. Violence in 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 our community. I mean, we we can't we can't deny that, but it 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 wasn't at the level. I mean, that they always you know. I mean, some people are dysfunctional. That you you have you have people who engage in sociopathic uh, behavior for whatever for, you know for a number of reasons. Uh, but but it was it 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 wasn't consuming. It it wasn't it wasn't at that level. And see, here, the thing of it is, is that what what prevented it. From, from exploding to the level that it has now is that our families were intact. And one of the things, one of the things that you were taught was don't do anything to embarrass your family. I mean, that was one of the things that guided a lot of us in terms of our values. Don't embarrass this family. Okay? But when families come apart, you know, and so, and so, and so people don't have, don't have that, that connection and and they and, and they just don't care. But, but see, what it, what it is now, and this is why I added communications to one of my to five critical areas of power: uh, economics, education, culture, communications, and politics. Communications now is there is a massive struggle for clarity versus confusion, because because there's there's so much confusion out there, and it, and it's producing. 
this this type of mentality that uh, that, that that you're calling calling ignorance, but it's really like self-destructive behavior. Of is what it is, but we have to understand the reasons why that came about. No, it we didn't have that level then, primarily because our families were intact, and if we could rebuild our families, it would reduce that. But obviously, that's, that is, it's an enormous challenge. Uh, you got anything else before we wrap up? Um, no, I, I think that's it. Okay, this has been the African Liberation Media. You can uh, check us out on Apple Podcasts, on, on the web at African Liberation Media, and, of course, on our Facebook page, Abibi Fahodier.